Father, we are all people created uh, to be hungry for you and for your word. And so we thank you that you have given to us in the scriptures uh, the food for our souls by which we feast and we are nourished and strengthened and edified and built up. So, Father, both for the children's ministry as well as our time now in the sermon, we ask that you would uh, let our hearts feast abundantly on what you have revealed to us in your scriptures. We ask your Holy Spirit to be present with us so that what we eat would not only uh, feed the mind but feed the heart and that it would translate into uh, discipleship and doxology as we live our lives before your face. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys are dismissed. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to John chapter 2. We're reading verses 1 to 11 again as this is our second time looking at this passage. Uh, We're in a series entitled, Come and See. And uh, I announced last week that we would take a second look at this same exact passage. Last week, we focused on how Jesus offers us a better joy, a better joy than any joy the world can give. And today, we see that Jesus also gives us a better love, a better love than we could ever hope for. And so I've entitled this sermon, Come and Know a Better Romance. At this time, would you stand with me for the reading of God's holy word? We stand, of course, in reverence as our king addresses us. So let us hear now as we read God's word from John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be Please be seated. Every week, we've been confronted with the person of Jesus as John presents him to us. Who is he? What does he teach? And what did he come to do? Those three questions. Now, if you admit that you don't know the answers to these questions, my hope is that this series is beginning to give you a better grasp of the person of Jesus as the Bible shows him, not as the culture assumes him. And if you already can answer all of these questions about Jesus, I hope this series still surprises you as you take another look again at the Savior. You know, this past week I came across this, I'm not sure how true this is, but um, I came across a story that that, uh, Albert Einstein had read through the Gospels in the New Testament. And after he had read through all four Gospels, this was his reflection. He writes, I am a Jew... But I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. 
Jesus is too colossal for the pen of phrase mongers, however artful. No man can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. And I wonder, is this the kind of sense that you get from Jesus as you read his story? Do you feel his presence and personality coming alive as you look into God's word? This is definitely a prayer both for myself and for you. And as we look at today's story, if we take our time and we drink of the text slowly and we chew on it long enough, I think what begins to emerge is a picture of Jesus that is bigger than what we initially think we could walk away with. We read a story like today, and we can conclude that what this is showing and the point of it, like many of, other, of Jesus' other miracles, is that Jesus is displaying his supernatural power. It's easy to read this and conclude, well, turning water into the wine is a way of, of, of flexing his spiritual muscles and, and is meant for us to go, oh, and wow, in response to him. But I think we're actually missing something that John wants us to see because this text is both about a joy Jesus comes to offer, but also a love that he comes to show. We've already considered the joy he comes to bring, but today I want to focus on this great love. You know, it's true, I think, that sometimes accepting Jesus as he reveals us, as he re reveals himself to us, as the Bible reveals himself to us, can make us feel a little uncomfortable. Now, how many of you in here, and particularly the men, how many of you in here, uh, how do you feel at the suggestion that Jesus is your great romance? And I, th I think the majority of us would like to think of Jesus in, in many ways but this way. Because we can affirm a lot of things about Jesus. Jesus, oh, he, he, he is the, the better redemption and, and the better reconciliation and brings the better renewal. But what about saying that Jesus is the better romance? You may say, hold your horses. I think for a lot of us, identifying Jesus as the lover of your soul it's just a little too uncomfortable. Jesus being the romance of our hearts just makes us feel a little too uneasy. And if it does, if this begins to make you feel uncomfortable in any way, let me just tell you now, never read the Songs of Solomon. Caution, stay clear of that book if this makes you feel uncomfortable. You see, because the scriptures aren't ashamed to talk about Jesus in this kind of way, yet often we are. I want to make the following case with you today. Jesus is the true love that all of us are looking for because he woos us with a better romance than the world offers. What is it about Jesus that makes him a better romance? That's our big question today. And we'll answer it by looking at three things. Three things about Jesus. First, Jesus is a better bridegroom. Jesus provides a better wedding. And thirdly, Jesus gives a better love. And so let's begin with this first point. Jesus is a better bridegroom. The story begins with Jesus being invited to a wedding with his disciples. And quickly the story moves into the, the drama, which occurs when Mary comes and informs Jesus that the wine has run out. And so we know that the wedding will take a drastic turn for the worse unless Jesus does something about it. 
So despite his initial resistance, he eventually obliges the request of his mother, and he turns six stone water jars of, of water into wine. But when Jesus does this, this is what you need to know what's happening. He is not only saving the wedding, he is saving the bridegroom. What do I mean by that? Well, let's pick up with verses 8 and 9. And he, Jesus, said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. You see, the master of the feast is sort of like a master of ceremonies. His job, his role was to keep the party going, to keep the celebration alive. And so when he tastes this new wine of Jesus, he calls the bridegroom over to comment on the superior quality of this wine. You see, he calls the bridegroom. He doesn't call the bride. He calls the bridegroom because it was customary that the bridegroom and his family provide the wine at the wedding. So what would have happened had the wine run out? Well, of course, the celebration would have ended early, and the wedding guests would have looked for somebody to blame. And who would be at fault but the bridegroom? As a result, then, the bridegroom and his whole entire family would be brought down in great shame and dishonor. They would be the talk of the town. So when Jesus comes in and he turns water into wine, he's not just saving the wedding. He's saving the bridegroom, the face of the bridegroom. You know, in wedding ceremonies these days, and let's be honest about this, uh, what exactly does the groom do the day of? Hardly nothing. Right? While the bridesmaids, the bride and her bridesmaids are up early, they're doing makeup and they're doing their hair, you know, the groom and the groomsmen are, are just slowly getting out of bed, leisurely getting dressed and still with plenty of time to spare. Right? In reality, the groom only has one job, to show up on time. Just one job. It's quite simple for him. Well, in the ancient days, the groom just had two jobs. Show up, provide the wine. Show up and provide the wine. It's not complicated, and yet we see this bridegroom has failed one of two simple duties. He hasn't prepared enough. So Jesus' miracle is more than merely saving a man from mere social embarrassment. Remember, verse 11 says this is a sign. Everything Jesus is doing is pointing to another reality, a greater reality. And what reality is that? It's the reality that Jesus Christ is introducing himself. He's identifying himself now as the true and better bridegroom. You see, just as Jesus accomplished what Adam in the garden could not do, just as Jesus succeeded where Adam in the garden failed and thus established himself as the true and better Adam, so too Jesus now provides where this man fails. Jesus fulfills what this man cannot. And what is he doing? He's establishing himself as the true and better bridegroom. This is a theme throughout all of the Old Testament. It's one of the metaphors God himself loves to use for himself. He identifies himself as the bridegroom of his people. And, Jesus, and God takes on this metaphor, he takes on this imagery to highlight his faithfulness, his commitment to those who belong to him. So Isaiah 54 verse 5 says this, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. Isaiah 61 verse 10 
I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. In Isaiah 62, verse, 25, verse 5, he says, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Jesus is aware of this metaphor, this powerful metaphor in the Old Testament. And that's why he uses and chooses this as his first sign to reveal himself. He is a better husband. He is a better bridegroom to his people. But who are his people? They are everybody who looks to him in faith for their salvation. You see, when you come to know Jesus, when you come to trust in the Lord Jesus, you not only come to know him as Lord and Savior, but as husband and bridegroom. And do you know what that says about you? If you are now in faith wedded to Christ as your bridegroom, that means you are his bride. You are the object of his passion and his affection. You are the object of his holy jealousy. You are the object of his covenantal love. That as the bridegroom, when you are brought into relationship with him, he pledges himself to you. He commits himself and his love to you no matter the cost. No matter how little you can give in return to him. No matter how often you are going to be unfaithful to him in chasing other loves, he has pledged himself to you. Jesus Christ as your bridegroom means this. It means no matter how many times you fail... No matter how many times you walk away, no matter how many times you spurn his love, he will pursue you with endless mercy and persistent love. But as Jesus woos you, as he covenants with you, he begins to change you from the inside out, purifying your heart and your desires. Remember what was happening. Jesus turned six stone water jars into wine. These water jars were, the, were meant for Jewish, the Jewish rites of purification. And we talked last week that how the wine foreshadowed the wine of Jesus' blood that he offers in the Lord's Supper. And Jesus' point in all this was to say that the earthly water can't ultimately cleanse you from your sins. It's only the shed blood of Jesus Christ that can make you clean forever. What was Jesus promising? As the bridegroom who's supplying the water turned into wine, the wine representing his cleansing blood, Jesus is promising as the bridegroom that he will cleanse you of all of your sins, that he will cover you of all of your shame, that he will cover you for all of your nakedness. Every blemish, every fault, he will take care of. The only person who knows so clearly those areas of your life, how filthy you can get, is yourself. But the God-honest truth is, a lot of you do such a good job of covering them up, of concealing them. A lot of you do a great job of diverting your attention away from those things that you don't want anybody else to see by excelling in other things, being beautiful in other ways, so that you are saying, no, 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 don't look over here. Look over here. Look how pretty I am. Look how smart I am. Look how successful I am. Because you are trying to cover that which you know you cannot. Many of you, you look good externally. 
You look good physically, but under the hood, behind the closet, there are scars, aren't there? There are wounds, aren't there? There there are evil thoughts and there are evil intentions that ever abound. But as your true and better bridegroom, Jesus doesn't run away when he sees those things in your life, but he works to purify and cleanse you with his sanctifying blood. This is what he does as the bridegroom, that he commits himself to you despite knowing your imperfections. Apostle Paul, he helps us understand this gospel truth powerfully when he writes to the Ephesians in chapter 5. This is what Apostle Paul writes. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. You see, as your great romance, Jesus is working to cover your impurities with his purity your unrighteousness with his righteousness, your failures with his successes, your defeats with his victories, your sins with his holiness. And he is working to present you radiant and beautiful one day. You know, when you go to a wedding or reflect back on your own, we all know that scene as the bride comes down the aisle, all dressed in white, The whole room stands still. Every eye in that room is fixed in one place and on one person, the bride. And she is radiant, dressed in all white, symbolically showing that she is being presented in absolute purity and spotlessness. And she steals the breath of everybody in that room. But most of all, the groom. Now, I've had the great privilege of doing a few weddings now, and I would do as many as I can for this one moment alone, that when the doors open and the bride comes in, the groom, no matter how cool or sharp or calm or collected he may be before and after that moment, in that moment, they all look the same. They have this dumb look, this dumb smile that overtakes their face because they can't believe what their eyes are beholding. They're so enthralled with the vision of their bride that everything in that moment disappears. You know, as our bridegroom, Jesus will present you in such a radiant splendor one day. Jesus will look at you, as he does even now, with those longing and desiring eyes. And this isn't because he's surprised to see you in a white dress. This is not because he hasn't seen you before the wedding and this is the first time he sees you. No, he will look at you in such a way because he is the one who has done the dirty and difficult work of dying on a cross to purchase and purify you so that he can present you without blemish and spot on that final day. You know, in that moment, by the shedding of his blood and the sanctifying work of his spirit, heaven will be frozen with their gaze on his bride, you and me, the people of God. Silence will fall across the hosts of heaven as Jesus stands as the bridegroom ready to receive his bride. 
cosmos will be in envy as you are welcomed into his arms. This is what it means to know Jesus as the better bridegroom. But what about the wedding? And this leads to our second point. Jesus promises a better wedding. You see, when the master of the feast tastes the wine, he calls the bridegroom over, and this is what he says in verse 10. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. You see, now that Jesus has gotten involved in this wedding, the wedding celebration gets better. The better the wine, the better the celebration. Again, Jesus isn't just saving the wedding, but he's actually taking it to a whole new level. And every commentator notes that this, what's happening here is Jesus is actually showing us a small picture of a better and future wedding that is to come. The wedding that this is pointing to will be a better wedding, not just because the bridegroom is better. It won't be better just because we'll no longer sit as spectators and observers. The wedding won't be better because we get to be as close as being part of the bridal party. But it'll be better because we will stand as the bride herself. We will stand face to face with Jesus Christ holding in our hands his nail-pierced hands, getting ready for an eternity of ever-increasing joy and blessedness in the Savior. So Revelation 19, Apostle John, who wrote this gospel, receives a vision later of the celebration of this final wedding day. And and he says he he hears the, the mighty peals of thunder crying out, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Oh, what a day of anticipation, a day to look forward to. Why? Because this wedding will signify the beginning, not the end, but the beginning of an eternity of joy and blessedness. Friends, Has your happiness and the celebration of the Eagles winning the Super Bowl died down yet? In your heart of hearts, have you been able to maintain that same level of elation over the past few months? You know, right after the championship win, it was impossible to have a bad day, wasn't it? But since then, one week later, Two weeks later, you've had a few rough ones, haven't you? You've had a few disappointments and letdowns. You've had a few seasons, maybe weeks, that the joy of the Super Bowl win cannot cover. You see, no matter how joyful and unbelievable that event and victory was, the celebration ceases, the rejoicing recedes. All of the feelings, they fizzle away. But the marriage feast of Jesus Christ and his bride will only mark the beginning of an eternal journey into discovering this ever-increasing blessedness of life in union with Christ. 
being so satisfied in his love for us, we will rest forever in the security of his protecting and providing and pursuing love. Our marriage with Christ, the better wedding he promises, is the great hope we should anticipate. It's where life in Christ is leading us. And so I ask you, what is your great hope? What is your great anticipation? Are you eagerly awaiting this day? Does it fill you with incredible and unshakable hope and desire? Do you have it marked in your calendar? Are you, is everything else in this world failing in terms of your great excitement for this day? Because as a believer, this is the day that we are looking toward. Now, I want to point out something uh, that's fascinating that the author John is doing in his gospel that so often we don't slow down enough to actually see. John's opening chapters mimics and parallels the opening chapters of Genesis. Some of you may already be familiar with this. The opening of Genesis 1, verse 1, mimics and parallels or John chapter 1, verse 1. And so Genesis begins in, begins in this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1, 1 begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So what Genesis does is it announces the beginning, and then it leads us through six days of creation, which culminates in the seventh day when God rests. So, so often we, we, we focus on the six days, we forget the spotlight is on the seventh day. It's on this eternal rest. The seventh day is the goal. The seventh day is the final end, the telos, where God is ultimately leading his people. The promise meant to point to heaven's eternal Sabbath rest. That's what Genesis is doing. John is doing the same thing, but he's laying out his own seven-day week. And the spotlight is shining on the hope of this better wedding. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John begins his seven-day week. Day one begins in verses 19 to 28 when John the Baptist gives witness to Christ. Day one. Day two continues in verse 29. The next day, that's the second day, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. Day three picks up in verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. Then comes day four. In verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. So we're at day four. Then we get to our passage today, John chapter 2, verse 1, and it begins, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. So what day is that? Five, six, seven. That the wedding of Cana is happening on the seventh day. What is John doing? John is leading us through six days of activity that culminates in the seventh day when Jesus turns water into wine, symbolizing he intends to enter into this marriage covenant, this wedding feast that he will have with us, his bride. The spotlight is falling on the wedding because it's pointing to a better wedding, an eternal wedding between Christ the bridegroom and church, we who are his beloved and cherished bride. Do you see the attention John is giving to this sign. The wedding of Cana is supposed to stir in us a great longing for the future day when we will be embracing the arms of the true and better bridegroom. 
And the best part of this is when we enter into the Sabbath rest of Genesis, when we enter into that rest, it's not the end. It's the beginning of eternal rest to come. When we enter into and celebrate with Christ our marriage union with him, that is not the end, but it's the beginning. It's the starting point of an eternity of enjoying his covenantal love for us. It's not a starting, it's not an ending point, it's a starting point. I've been quoting a lot of, uh, of C.S. Lewis recently, but not the mere Christianity, weight of glory stuff, but the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, the deep, the hard stuff. And if you know the Chronicles of Narnia, you know that the last book is called The Last Battle. And as he is, uh, C.S. Lewis is finishing, concluding this story, this, this series, the very last section of the book, and this is how the book ends. This is what he writes. And as Aslan spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, the characters in the book... It was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before Friends, I'm not sure what things you are looking forward to, what hopes and dreams that you have that give you strength to get through today. We all have longings and desires in the future that give us meaning and determination in the present. That's how we journey on. The question is, are those things that we are anticipating, looking forward to, and hoping in, are they chapter one of a great story, or are they the last chapter, the final joy, the end of the story? Do the things that you anticipate and hope for and dream of and long for, do they open the doors into a better and greater reality? Or do they close the door because they themselves are the end, the destination, there's nothing after that? What are those things that you are dreaming of? What are the promises that you cling to? What are those things that get you through the grind of an often difficult and mundane life? For some of us, it may be the anticipation of retirement and sitting on a beach chair for the last decades of your life. That's what you are hoping for. For some of you, it's your children's future, the college they get into, the jobs they're going to have, the people they're going to marry, the grandchildren you're going to have. Maybe for some of you, it's not so far. It's immediate. It's a vacation coming up, time away, time off. For the students, it's school finally letting out, getting the break that you so need. Maybe it's the arrival of summer. Maybe it's prom. Maybe it's uninterrupted time spent with friends. What are the things that you are hoping for, longing for, anticipating, waiting for? I can't wait till this day. For some of you, it may be just the end of physical pain and suffering. For those in strained relationships, maybe it's the, the resolution of an ongoing cl- conflict with somebody. Maybe it's, it's just release from all of the stress of expectation and responsibility you feel. You see, my point is it can be any number of things. What is that thing that you are fixating your eyes on, longingly hoping for and anticipating? 
Because whatever it is, unless it's looking forward to spending eternity with Christ and an ever-growing intimacy with the lover of your soul, everything else is just a chapter that's one step closer to the end of the story. But, friends, we must set our hope, we must learn to set our hope and our anticipation on the promise that John was given in Revelation when he says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. To the greater wedding that he promises. That is the start of a story in which every chapter is better than the one before. You see, in this story of marriage to Christ, beggars are made his bride, and losers are made his lover, and those rejected are made his romance, and those weak are wedded to the one who pledges himself to us. Jesus is our better bridegroom. And he promises to us a better wedding. And thirdly, he gives us a better love. And this is our third point. Ultimately, how do we know Jesus gives us a better love? It's because his love is not mere sentiment or emotion but sacrifice through substitution. You see, in verse 8, after Mary tells Jesus the problem, listen to what he says to her. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. In Jesus' response, we talked about this last week, there's a hint of distance. It's not disrespectful, it's not rude, but it is distant. And we mention that this is because Jesus' mind is somewhere else. Jesus' mind is occupied with other concerns. If you think about it, the, the, the response is quite strange. They've run out of wine. My time hasn't come. Huh? What are you saying, Jesus? What is the connection? And the connection is this. That in the Gospel of John, as you continue to read it, you begin to notice that every time Jesus talks about the hour... He is referring to the hour when he will be betrayed and given over to crucifixion for the sins of the world. So it says here in John chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus says to his disciples, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Then later in John 13, verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In his high priestly prayer before his crucifixion, Jesus prays in John 17, 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. And so when Jesus is sitting there at the wedding and Mary says, do something about it. He says, my hour has not yet come. It's because his mind is thinking about that future day when he will die on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins. His mind is occupied somewhere else. His body is present. His mind is somewhere else. I think all of us, if you've ever been to a wedding, have an experience like that. And if you've ever been to a wedding, during this ceremony, there's always going to be a moment. It's unavoidable. It's always going to happen. There's always going to be a moment when you look at the things around you, and you can't help but either think of your wedding, if you're already married, the wedding you've had, or if you're single, imagine the wedding that you will soon have. You're observing. I like that. I don't like that. Oh, I want to do that. I don't want to do that. Should I do indoor? 
should I do outdoor? Live music, DJ, big, small. And we sit and we think about such things. Jesus is likewise thinking about his future wedding. Now, if you've ever planned a wedding or known somebody who has, you know how easy it is to be overwhelmed and discouraged by the astronomically high cost of a wedding, the tremendous price tag that comes on them. Some of you are thinking amen, but you're not saying it. The same is true of Jesus. Jesus is thinking about his wedding, and I guarantee you he's thinking about the cost of that wedding, the price he's going to have to pay. Now, why would his wedding be so expensive? Because when Jesus commits himself to sinners like you and me, the debt that we bring into the relationship now becomes his debt. When Jesus commits himself to us, the judgment that we bring into the relationship now becomes his. When he makes his vows with us, the punishment we deserve now become his. And in order for two to become one, he takes those things from us onto himself. Because of his great love for you, he absorbs your debt. He takes on your judgment. He receives your punishment so that they are no longer yours. And in that fatal hour, as Jesus dies on a cross for you and in your place, he proves his love, declaring to you, listen, there is no price too high. There is no cost that is too much. There is no sacrifice that is too great that I am not willing to pay in order to make you mine. This is the better love. A better love than we could ever receive from any person or anything. This is the love of your great romance. Do you know it? Not abstractly. Not cognitively, not theoretically, not even theologically. Do you know it personally and intimately and deeply? Or do you feel it in your bones? Do you feel it pulsating in your heart? Do you feel it filling your soul? And I'll close with this. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, some of us know at times what it is to be almost too happy to live. The love of God has been so overpoweringly experienced by us on some occasions that we have had almost to ask for a suspension of the delight because we could not endure it anymore. If the glory had not been veiled a little, we should have died of excess of rapture or happiness. Spurgeon is describing an overwhelming sense of the love of God in Jesus Christ, the great romance of our souls, and this is a love that you can know. It is a love that can be yours, not by earning it, not by deserving it, but by humbly receiving it through faith in the one who came to die for your sins to make you his own. Some of you may have forgotten this love. It's been a while since you've felt so delighted in. Seek it again. Seek him again. The invitation is clear. 
come to Jesus. Come and see. Come and know a greater romance. Pray with me. Actually, before I close, I'd like to just give a few moments for us to, to respond. Uh, if the Spirit is using anything in the Word to press or to convict or to challenge or to encourage, let's take this moment now just to respond for a few moments and then I'll close us in prayer. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give us strength to comprehend what is the height and depth and the breadth and the length of your great love for us in Jesus. For those who have never known it, would you pierce their heart today, bringing them to faith and repentance and in Christ who pledges himself to them. For those of us, Lord, who have known it, but are guilty like those in the church of Ephesus in Revelation that we have forgotten that first love, Lord, would you help us to repent, to seek it again? For we know, Jesus, that you do not turn yourself away, that it is not you who walks away, but it is you who pursues and you overtake you overwhelm us with your love. And so, God, I pray that all of us here this day as we leave your house, having worshiped with the saints, that our hearts would be full with the great love of the Savior, with Jesus, our better romance, with Jesus, the lover of our souls. Lord, we ask these things boldly. We plead with you in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Receive the benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our great romance, and the love of God the Father Almighty, and the, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that unites us to know our true and better bridegroom. May the blessing of our triune God be with you, God's people, both now and forevermore. Hear the dismissal from 3 John 11. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Having seen God, let us go and do good unto his glory. Go in peace.